I think I'm going to start with the cartoon. <laughs> Here is a cartoon from this week's um, this week's New Yorker, and I'll pass it around in a minute. But if you can see it, you can see that there's a person walking along in a forest glen, and uh, uh, the person is wearing kind of a toga-like thing and sandals and walking with a staff. Uh, and in the background over here, there's a burning bush, and peeking out from behind this tree is a larger-than-life figure of a man with an old man with a long white beard. And the caption is, that's just a bush that happens to be on fire. I'm over here. <laughs> so, uh, it's funny, isn't it? Why is it funny? Why is it funny? Why does it tickle you? I think it's hysterical. That's why I, I, I was determined to build this whole, who wants another one as a take home gift? Birthday present? Thank you, Sylvia. You're welcome. Who else wants one? Well, listen, I have a bunch of them. All right, why don't you be in charge of giving out birthday presents here? Okay, there you go. So where to start with this? I had a lot of things. Here we go. So I'll tell you why I think it's funny. You, well, one of the reasons why I wanted it for this class, particularly. I think that the, uh, I think that the, the point of this cartoon be interested if you got a different point out of it, is you have to know, keep your eye on the ball, and you have to know what is the ball that we want to keep our eye on. Did you think something else, Lynn? What did you think about the cartoon? Why is it funny? Well, I think that, that we can miss the point so fast. That's it. We can be occupied with something that's mandatory and not... There you go. You said it better than I did. What else? Don't be distracted by big drama. <laughs> so Amara said, don't be distracted by big drama. Anybody else have another idea about this? No, I think that's a wonderful way. Actually, that's a perfect way for me to then read um, a description that I read in something, in, um, in John Wellwood, in a book called Ordinary, in an essay, called Ordinary Magic, and it's an essay about mindfulness, actually, and it's about the magic of waking up to your life just as it is, not with burning bushes, but with relationships and with love and with connections. And um, I copied this, I copied this, uh, this is John Wellwood's definition of distraction, because I remembered, among other things, first of all, I liked the definition, I remember once some years ago, I was at a speaker at an interfaith conference where one of the speakers was uh, the president, uh, the chairman of the International uh, Federation of Contemplative Christianity or something. So, but it was, it, it, he was a man in, in robes. He was a, he was a Roman Catholic um, priest. And he said, that the definition of sin was distraction. 
And here is John Wellwood's definition of sin. He says, distraction means losing traction. Losing our ground is what happens when we slip away from the present. It is only in the stillness and simplicity of presence, when we're aware of what we're experiencing, when we're here with it as it unfolds, then we can appreciate our life and reconnect with the ordinary magic of being alive in this earth. If we could stay, uh, when we sit and listen to people speak here and here and here and here and here, of this and that, of either pleasure or contentment or really pain or woe of people's lives, and realize it's amazing that people keep going on. That's a big piece of magic, that everybody gets up in the morning and puts on their shoes and socks and goes out again, as if they want to do it all over again. That It's full of, you know, it's too hot, it's too cold, it rains, the sun comes out, everything. And this bad news and that bad news, and in between the bad news. I'm sure you, I'm sure you all remember the beginning of Annie Hall. Who remembers the beginning of Annie Hall, the opening scene of Annie Hall? Do you want to say the, the dialogue? In the movie, the two there, there's a voiceover that says two women are sitting in rocking chairs uh, on the porch of uh, the Bidawee Hotel or something, or some hotel. Two old women are sitting in rocking chairs on the porch of a hotel, and one of them saying, the food in this hotel is so terrible. And the other one says, yes, and such small portions. <laughs> it's about the same thing. You know, that it's continually difficult, this life. And we continually keep on going. And we continually want more. And we continually hope for it to be better. That's an amazing thing. That is magic, you know. Uh, and it really, it's not true that nobody throws in the towel and says, I can't take it anymore. Sometimes people do. But very few, comparatively. Really, mostly we want to go on. So let's, let's, I'm going to really try this time to start with the first noble truth and get, through, go all the way to the fourth. That the, the first noble truth, as you remember, and I've already said a few times this week, this day, is that everything is always changing. You can't really, you can't really say everything is great. In soap operas, whenever anyone says we're going to be happy the rest of our lives, you know that if you turn on two weeks later, it'll be a mess. That it just, it's going to be that way. Someone will call so and so had an accident, so and so's in a coma, so and so suddenly had a heart attack. That's what happens to people. It's kind of an evanescent quality, this life. It keeps on changing. And we know that, but we don't really know it. I think if we really knew it, we wouldn't spend a moment angry. What would be the point of nursing a grudge and giving away a day to chewing over ill will? It embitters the mind. It makes you unhappy. You spend a miserable day. And then at the end of the day, the person that maybe the person that offended you calls and says, "I'm so sorry. I was just I was really off. I'm I'm really I'm sorry. I really love you." And you spent the whole day grinding on about it. You know, that to be able to say, "I don't know how this is going to end, but you know this is what's happening now. Let's see what's going to happen next." Seems to me 
the more I go on, the more I think that the development of poise in the way that we did when we were meditating, whatever is happening, that's okay. This thought came up, that's okay. This feeling came up, that's okay. It's a little cold in here, that's okay. My my back hurts a little bit, that's okay. You know, that just whatever we can do to calm down our mind is because all of those things are based not really on arm wrestling your mind to the ground, but reminding it of what's true. When we're sitting, we're only sitting for a half hour. However it is, it's not going to last more than a half hour. So the piece of wisdom that goes out of the mind often is everything is transient. This is soon going to change. If you feel in a terrible mood, you say, oh, I'll be in a terrible mood forever. Probably not. You don't know what's going to happen next. I, somebody told me the other day, some colleague of mine somewhere we were talking on the phone, said, you know, that was the best thing I heard you say in the whole time we were teaching together, that line, let's see what happens next. So that, that line, she said, has helped me so much. That's Gil Fransdahl's line for developing equanimity. He said, oh, look what happened. I wasn't expecting that. I didn't want that. Let's see what happens next is the thought that comes in, if we can, before, I didn't expect this, this is terrible, this is awful, the whole rest of my life will be awful, it'll never be good, you know, which the mind often does when it's startled. I also think that probably I should, <laughs> sometimes I think, what am I going to teach the whole rest of my life? Because I used to have lots of things, there are lots of Buddhist discourses you can do, but uh, the more I teach, the more I think it's all about calm down, get a grip. It's, you know, <laughs> it's going to pass. And you can't give a long Dharma talk if you say, calm down, get a grip, it's going to pass. It's really worthwhile. Take my word. Tomorrow will be different. And everything, all the things that your grandmother knew, don't cry over spilt milk, you know, things happen. All those banal kinds of things to say are actually true. My my mother-in-law used to say, as long as you've got your health, I thought, well, that's what old women say. But actually, <laughs> now I'm an old woman, and I see that it's actually true. As long as you've got your health, you can do this, you can do that, you can do the other. It's not that hard. The the So we're skipping over, because we're going to really get to the fourth today. The first is that you can't trust it to stay the same. The second is that the definition of suffering is the imperative of the mind that things should be different from how they are. They're often different from how you'd like or from how they are. Imperative in the mind that this moment should be otherwise. It cannot be otherwise because of everything that happened. It really in the whole of the whole of the whole world when you think about it. Uh, maybe just to say about it briefly here, uh, in Buddhist um, in Buddhist teachings about karma. There are things like this, there is proximal karma, karma, and distant, distal karma. So the proximal karma of my being here this morning is, first of all, that I got up in health this morning, or that, um, oh, that's it, that I got up in health this morning, that I've been taking good care of myself, that I'm in town. All of those things conspire so that I'm here. But you think the distal karma of my being here Depends on my four different grandparents coming from from four places and meeting each other and liking each other well enough to make that my parents and my parents living around the corner from each other so that they liked each other well enough to create me 
And really the fact that those four people came to the United States has to do with the changing economic and social situations in Europe, which very much depended on Marco Polo opening trade routes <laughs> to the or Orient. So in some sense, you could say that my Marco Polo is part of my karma, <laughs> distal karma. But nevertheless, in those times that I realized that everything creates everything, and everything causes everything. It takes a big burden off me from thinking, why me, why them, why not? Because really, why not me? This is what happened because of all those things happened. And there, there's some, the Zen sayings are often so enigmatic and they sound really like, how could that mean anything like? Because of that, this. But be really, because of that, everything, this moment which doesn't mean I shouldn't try to change this moment or that I couldn't have feelings, even disturbed feelings about this moment, but that this moment is not a mistake. This moment is this moment, and let's see what happens next and what can I do are the operative things. And absolutely, what can I do? Every once in a while, people new to Buddhism hear about that and they think, oh, such a quiescent religion, you just, everything that you let it all roll over you, never mind. It's not about not being proactive and not doing things. But it's not about reacting in confusion in the moment of the startle to do something that will increase the suffering of the moment. Say, hmm, this is what's happening now. What should I do next? Just, I just thought of something that was a good story, I thought, but I'll tell you this instead. I'm going to move ahead because I'll do too many stories and they won't. Well, but the, I, I really did want to say that. Uh, no, 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 no. Let me not. Let me not. Well, let me bring it. Let me tell you about the last several days. What happens is we do act peremptorily and make it worse for ourselves. <laughs> now I'll tell you another story. I hadn't planned to tell you this story. The not acting immediately when startled. Uh, we're, we're often startled. Something is wonderful and we want more of it. And how frequently do you, are you doing something on your computer and pops up here from such and such a shoe company that you bought something online and comes up here, just the shoe that you need for the event that you're going to have next week. How many people ever had something comparable to that and bought it? And bought it because it's right there. Click here. Then you click here and they say, welcome back, shopper Sylvia. Click here and we'll send you those shoes. And in, in the thrall of that, how many people, well, we'll do two things. It's often you can send stuff back. So, but there are worse things that we can do peremptorily. And often we get frightened peremptorily. We see something and we think, uh-oh, uh, uh, you know, what do I, this is, this is bad news. Uh, I'll have to do that and it won't work out and I'll be late for my appointment. And then they say, no, no, actually the plane is taking off on time. In the meantime, the mind got all startled up and ruffled up. How to be able to have a mind that says, let's just see what's happening before we spring forward. It, really developing equanimity. How many people, maybe we will do this now, how many people 
watched the, uh, it wasn't a debate, the presidential uh, uh, presentation of candidates last Thursday. How many people watched? Not so many. I watched. <laughs> of those people who watched, would you like to mention, I uh, here was my list, there it is. Mention the different emotional states come up in you. <laughs> Look, at laughing. Ha, ha. <laughs> huh? That's why you didn't watch. Of the people who watched, let's just make a list of states that arose. This is not a partisan thing, even. Just, just regular. What's a, a name of state? Okay. <laughs> huh? Hilarity. Irritation, despair, shock, curiosity, amazement, disbelief. Huh? Fear. Embarrassed. Sad. It was hard to watch, wasn't it? Yeah. Wasn't, um, I think because the mind gets so stirred up. I was remembering about, um, in my, in my husband's family, there was, uh, when I met my husband's family, it was not so long after the development of television, if you can imagine. It was 1952, after the wars, when television came. And there was an old, old lady in his family who never quite got the concept of television. And she actually thought there was someone in that box. <laughs> and she would talk to them. If they said something that she objected to, she would talk back to them. So I'm thinking about when you look at that, you look and you want to say, wait a minute, I don't think that's true, what you just said. Or, wait a minute. I found it was hard to sleep afterwards, that my mind was stirred up. Were you peaceful afterwards? Well, then I, I actually I'll tell you I wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to talk about this either quite so fast because and especially a lot of people didn't watch. I found that I was so curious because it was so in my mind outrageous what happened I couldn't believe it, and so I started to watch afterwards. What did this network say about it? Then I thought, well, what? Did the other network say about it? the network I never have ever watched even? I thought to myself, I'll see what they thought about it. And then what did everybody else say the next day about it? And then I said to myself, I don't feel well from all this. You know, this, you know, that particular, the fifth precept of I undertake the precept to abstain from intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness does not mean just alcohol and drugs. That definitely clouds the mind. And I definitely got up the next morning and I said, I'm not turning on the television set all day today because I am hung over. And I'm sorry to say, I turned, not that minute, but in the course of the day, I thought, well, I'll just check. <laughs> and then I'm, I, 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 I'm actually, I'm actually over the addiction, but that's really, it lasted several days. Anybody else had that? Where I kept saying, I, unbelievable that they said, I'm kind of unbelievable. And then I had to say, someone else will tell me. I'm just turning. I read the newspaper every day. At night, actually, when the whole day has gone by and everybody told me all the stuff, so it's not quite so. 
And in the morning, it's actually much better for me to get up and go and sit, which I most mornings actually do, and then go about my day and not get it all whipped up. So I, I really, why am I saying that? Because it happened with everybody. I thought there'd be a lot of response to that. And also, well, there was one good response to it for me. For me, one, one, one thing that I think I learned in listening to the, listening to the commentary on the station that I never listened to, on the channel that I never listened to, I heard some points that people made that I never heard made quite so well. Uh, and I thought to myself, you know, I could see that point of view a little bit. And, uh, I realized that my own mind is is not free of opinion. Not well. I didn't think it was free of opinions, but really not free of opinions, because when I heard some good thoughts about, well, maybe that's true. I thought to myself, what if people could really come together and talk to each other without all this histrionics uh, and without all this theater? Maybe they could actually have a discussion about what's going on. I thought about that. Uh, there's a, there's a way about, there's that line in the end of the Metta Sutta that says the, uh, the, the clear-minded one, um, by not holding to fixed views, is not born again into suffering. I thought, how many fixed views I have that I don't even know are fixed views? They don't seem to me to be fixed views. They seem to me self-evident truths. <laughs> They're not fixed views. The other people have views. I have truths. But how much I have this? This, uh, this is Lynn John Jensen. Lynn Jensen is a Zen teacher up in Chico. And he's talking about not having fixed views and being, uh, unresolved about something. Like, I've always thought about independent... I've often, not always, I suppose, I hope not always, thought about independent voters. How can they be independent voters? Either you know it's this, or maybe. He's telling, he's telling a whole long story about an event that happened to him. I don't have to read you the event. Where somebody um, came up to him on a park bench, let's say, and put a quarter down on the bench was an, a differently dressed kind of a person and might have been a street person, but he himself was dressed ordinarily and he might have been a street person. And someone put a quarter down on the bench and just looked at him and looked at it and they looked at each other and the other person didn't speak and he didn't speak. This is the whole long story here. And at some point he said, I don't have any money on me, which was true. He, I think, was doing a retreat of being a day without any money or something like that. He said, I don't have any money with me. And the other person didn't say anything, picked up the quarter and went away. And he said, um, I never made any sense out of the quarter the boy with, the boy had laid on the bench. In time, he picked the quarter back up, bowed in my direction and left. And though I might speculate endlessly, I have to admit that I simply didn't know what was going on. The thing is, I don't—I often don't know what's going on, even when I think I do. Persuading yourself that you know what's going on when you don't is a likely candidate for bringing harm into a situation. The world is reeling from the impact of leaders who know what they're doing, so to speak. 
The deluded knowing accounts for most of the worst mischief the human race is capable of. It leads to an unwarranted certainty that is synonymous in the language of Zen practice with ignorance. To be absolutely certain is to be ignorant. So, by the way, the only, uh, well, I know Norman Fisher, and he's a Zen teacher. I know other Zen teachers. But I did meet Sansanim one time, who was a Zen teacher from uh, Port, um, Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, he was known for saying he spoke uh, heavily accented English. But he would say about things, don't know, only keep, don't know mind. And ask, people would ask him about something, and he said, don't know, only keep, don't know, mind. And he actually said other things at some time, I'm sure, because <laughs> I know several people who are quite serious Zen students who lived with him at the Providence Zen Center for years. So I'm sure that, and Sansanim was their teacher, and he spoke, I'm sure. But there are very famous stories about him being in debate with teachers in other lineages, and uh, with a teacher in the in the Tibetan lineage, uh, with whom he had a debate scheduled, and his students this had happened in Boston, I think, and his stu- students of Sansanim were there, and students of Kala Rinpoche were there, having a debate, and um, through a, through translators because Kala didn't speak English and. Uh, Sansanim uh, took an orange out of the sleeve of his robe and put it down in front of Kala Rinpoche. And, uh, how did this go? No, Kala took an orange. Huh. Kala took an orange and put it in front of... Sansanim would have to be, wait, you check me at the end of this story. And said, what is this? And Sansanim said, don't know. <laughs> and Kala said, what is this? And Sansanim said, don't know. And uh, apparently a third time, what is this? said, don't know. And Kala turned to his advisor there and said, um, don't they have oranges in Korea? <laughs> the, the, but, you know, it could have been a plastic orange. It could have been an orange with no center in it. You know, I'm sure there was some very pithy Zen reason for that. It has to be that Kala put the orange in front of him. Yeah. So this is the last sentence of um, Lynn Jensen. When I don't know something for certain and don't try to convince myself that I do, I am held momentarily in the hand of restraint, and the world is safer for it. Isn't that a nice sentence? In the hand of restraint, and the world is safer for it. Without designing answers, I'm forced to hold the question open. It might seem doubtful or even absurd that the world of our understanding is unreliable and that the possibility of peace lies not so much in what we know as in what we don't. Something I know for a certainty often solidifies into the thought, sort of unquestioned fact that outreaches doubt and curiosity. I like that line so much. A sort of unquestioned fact in the mind that outreaches doubt and curiosity. 
If a question has been answered to my satisfaction, I'm not likely to see any need for further inquiry. Nations will readily go to war in defense of such an unexamined answer. Is it so far-fetched to imagine that a little modest doubt might bring people nearer to a peaceful resolution of differences? I'm thankful for anyone like the boy with the quarter who reminds me of how much I don't know. I think about all the times, I was going to say that I did, (laughs) how the times I still do give advice to my completely adult children. You know, because I'm the mother. You know, that's ridiculous. It was like, it was seriously, it was seriously ridiculous. It was ridiculous. I had to remember when they'd gone off to college and I'd give them advice and they'd get mad at me and maybe hang up the phone and then I would call them right back and grovel because, you know, grown up people making their own minds do not need somebody else to, particularly their parents, to twist their arm. You can say what you think. You can say what you think, but. It's so hard to uh, let people grow up. It's hard to know when people are grown up. (laughs) It is, including myself. My people are now old enough to tell me, Mom, get a grip. (laughs) That's really true. We we were at some very big family function not so long ago and said, I, I suddenly, I was, someone hurt my feelings a lot. Some, you know, people come of you, 150 people at a big wedding and somebody says a careless remark. And, uh, one of my daughters saw that my face had fallen down so that I didn't look well and she made her way over to where I was and she said, Mom, what's the matter? And I said, well, so and so said da da da. I'm really so put out by it. Uh, she said, Mom, get a grip. It was a 10-second encounter in the middle of a whole life of encounters. It's nothing. And, you know, and it is. Everything is a five-second encounter in a life of encounters. And it's nothing unless you care to grab it and run with it and idolize it and make something important out of it. Otherwise, you let it go. And I think if anything is happening to me after all these years, I'm better about that. I'm better about letting things go and not holding on to them like I need them if it's a good idea. <laughs> this morning I had a great idea while I was washing dishes and I had a great idea about how I was going to start this talk. And then I went in the other room and I got my book and I forgot the idea. <laughs> I thought to myself, that's all right, I'll have another idea when I get there. <laughs> now I want to be sure to do the Eightfold Path. You probably can do it. I, I, that, uh, one more word about the first noble truth. I, I said to somebody else in a conversation this morning on the phone, you know the four noble truths? I said, they're actually, it's the one noble truth. Life is complicated, ephemeral, it keeps on changing, and because it keeps on changing, it's really hard to keep yourself steady. That's the whole of all the noble truths. And the list of things that you can do, to, it's, they're all to keep yourself steady. And the second noble truth of suffering is caused by not being able to stay steady, and this is the truth. And the third noble truth is that every once in a while you can stay steady. And then you don't have a problem. You have peace in your mind. It's not peace in the world, and it's not peace for the rest of your life, but it's a peaceful moment that we can have a moment of peace. 
And the fourth noble truth is how to practice, how to live a life so that you're able to do that. I think we need reminders all the time. On Sunday afternoon, I went to a memorial for my 98-year-old friend who died. And it was, it was lovely. It was, it was, it, it, it was really a celebration. Honestly, if you get to be old and nothing is terribly wrong with your body, and in her case, nothing was wrong at all with her mind. She had conversations up to two days before she died that were relevant. Uh, and people talked about uh, the people who get out, got up and eulogized her. Well, it, the wonderful thing for me is I only I only knew her in the last ten years, and I knew her in the context of going to the opera. I didn't know how she grew up. I didn't know her life when she was Aunt Verna to her nephew who spoke about her. I didn't know how many Girl Scout chapters she'd organized. I didn't know that she drove a uh, bloodmobile for the Red Cross during World War II up and down hills of San Francisco, uh, a big bus with a clutch. Uh, and she had a very little woman driving up and down. Uh, and they said she was really a fiery woman. She just did anything, anything there was to do, she could do it. She continued to do that for the rest of her life if there was something to be done. And uh, somebody else told about how she was making plum jam off the plums in her uh, uh, garden as recently as last year because it upset her to have the plums go to waste. So she laboriously made all this plum jam. She said, it's not hard to make the jam. It's hard to lift up the pot of, whole, of hot water. But So people celebrated her, and they celebrated... And I, the lesson I took from that, first of all, is there were whole parts of her that I didn't know. And I think that that's actually true of everybody, that there are whole parts of them that we don't know. And when I don't, when I'm, I'm not like enthusiastic of somebody, I do that sometimes when I'm upset with political leaders. I think to myself, the whole parts of them that I don't know. I don't know whether this person is a great companion to the sick or a friend to the homeless. I don't know anything about them. I just know that they voted this way on that. We know slivers of people and make decisions on the basis of them. So I, I found that, that, that in that context, the lesson that I keep learning, again, is the first noble truth. Everything is ephemeral. I, when I got home, my husband said, was it sad? I said, no, not at all. But it was, yet again, another um, another lesson in life's end. That's the way it is. There are Buddhist reflections that people do where you get up every day and say, and say something like, I'm in the, I am, I as a human being, I'm in the nature of, the, of, of, uh, how do you say it, dying? What's it? There's what? I have not gone beyond sickness. I have not gone beyond dying. Thanks. I have. I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I have the nature to have ill health. I have not gone beyond that, and I'm in the nature of dying. To die, and I haven't surpassed that. And I will. I will, in essence. 
And you'll recognize that those are the three sites that the uh, Siddhartha Gautama was said to have seen as a young adult, as as an eye opener. It's the same. It's I think. Who knows? Maybe such a thing actually happened. I think it's a mythic representation of something that happens to all of us in our life. At one point, we realize maybe our grandfather dies when we're eight, or um, or our pet dies when we're a child, or our friend dies when we're a child, or when we're an adolescent, or a friend of ours is killed while we're in high school in a car accident. At some point, we really get it that this life is a finite life. And it's the same question that the Buddha had. Uh-oh. In this life, he can't count on anything. What will I do? And his understanding of suffering is quite apart from the understanding that some lives are very painful. Some people have painful <coughs> physical conditions. Some people live in really painful living conditions. We are all of us, I'm sure, in the top 1% of comfortable living conditions in the world. Probably 1%, most likely, here. Just And there's a lot of different, we're in different lives, but the air is clear, it's safe in the street, and we live in Marin County or the Bay Area, and we got here this morning, probably 1%. People have very, very difficult physical lives in the physical world and their physical body. But that's not what the Buddha was talking about. He was talking about not the, not the possibility, that was not what he was seeing as, the, as suffering. He, was, he saw that as the truth about life. People are in the nature of aging and getting sick and dying. What, and losing everybody else unless they lose themselves first. Or, and that the suffering, uh, that he taught about was the suffering of the mind not being okay with that. And I think about, uh, in, in, um, in, in religious terms we, where people use the, the idea that God is in charge of the world and, uh, say things like the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. I think it has the same meaning. It's out of our hands. People get born and people die. And people lose things that are dear to them. And how will we live in whatever circumstance? The definition of liberated for human beings in terms of the Buddha is liberated from struggle about the way things are. I was thinking about my friend who lived very, very long and died a few weeks ago. Uh, she really did have a long and uh, uh, very full life of doing things that pleased her and doing things that were helpful to a lot of other people. I had a friend once who died quite young, in his 40s, I think, with uh, a very... He was a psychiatrist and uh, in the Bay Area, and uh, he had uh, he had a family. He had two growing up children. Uh, he was an athlete. He loved to kayak. Uh, he had a, a thriving psychiatric practice, and he died of an inoperable cancer, very around about forty, I think. 
And the letter that he wrote to all the friends that his wife sent out after he died included the line, I would have wanted more, but I never wanted other. I thought to myself, that is an extremely big deal to not want other. I have been reading, I have been reading again the essays of Montaigne. This is a, this is not a, this is not what you call rapid reading, and I, I don't even know that you would, um, put it on, I actually keep it next to my bed and I read it from time to time because it's so smart. Um, but this I just read the other day, um, This is talking about, uh, this is halfway through the book, so I have to make a context for you. But this is actually, uh, the philosopher Nietzsche talking about Montaigne, who was several centuries before. He called Montaigne the freest and mightiest of souls, and he added that such a man wrote has truly augmented the joy of living on this earth. Montaigne apparently managed the trick of living as Nietzsche loved to do without petty resentments, he lived without regrets, embracing everything that happened without the desire to change it. He had made the remark, Montaigne did, if I had to live over again, I would live as I have lived. So really, it's a really, um, this is... To be, li- to be able to accept everything just as it is, willingly, without giving in to the futile longing to change it. <coughs> this came to Montaigne easily. It came to him by nature. It says most people have to practice it. So I think that the fourth noble truth is how to practice it. All the ways to practice it. I went to a... Um, I had a big weekend of confrontation with mortality. I went to Verna's memorial on Sunday, and then I went to a a burial on Monday uh, morning. Um, And I was I was remembering that that's why I picked up the Montaigne again because there was a line in it somewhere, but I couldn't find it. I was looking for it to tell it to you today, but I don't need it because I can tell you it. The line is. It's a very good idea to have a house in which your bedroom looks out on a cemetery. And, uh, I know it's in there somewhere. I couldn't find it, but, but, uh, which sounds macabre, but, uh, maybe. Does it sound macabre to you? I like cemeteries, actually. I, uh, I like to read the things that it says on tombstones. There was a cemetery down the street. There is a cemetery down the road, maybe a quarter of a mile from the Insight Meditation Center in Barry, Massachusetts. And when I was doing some meditation practice there years ago, I'd go spend several weeks there. And I'd go out for a walk, and I'd walk in the cemetery. And after I'd been there for a few weeks, and uh, the mind was pretty steady, and you're pretty much open, and I'd walk and read the gravestones, and you cry a lot, not, uh, not, not because, I mean, it's a very old cemetery, so people are dying in the 1800s, the, the date of death is late 1800s, early 1900s. But just look at, you cry at the coming and the going and the passing of life and what were all those people thinking about 
and what did they all want? They had the, uh, uh, a fair number of graves of babies because young babies often died of whooping cough or scarlet fever. Or, and uh, then uh, a fair number of graves of women 20-ish, 20, 20 to 30, 18 to 30, because the principal cause of death was childbirth. Up to 1920, the principal cause of death of women in this country was childbirth after tuberculosis. And then people lived very, very long. If they didn't die as children or as young mothers, they were 85 and 90. And uh, I guess they lived outside. They ate fresh fruit. They probably did a fair amount of farm work or outside work. Or, but you just see everybody had a life. Everybody had a name. Everybody had uh, hopes and dreams. It's very touching that life keeps going on, that we all keep getting up and doing it. The second, of, the second of the Eightfold Path is wise um, intention. That the first two, wise understanding and wise intention, go together. Wise understanding is knowing that's going to happen to everybody. We all have finite lives. Wise intention is to want to fix your, your mind both so that you can live through the slings and arrows and difficulties but also so that you live in a way that's, that, that makes you um, happy with yourself. Uh, the, at, the, at the cemetery on Monday, uh, one of the people who spoke, uh, my friend Jean de Bear, a man in his 80s, um, died. Uh, his wife, Elvira, has been a long friend of mine. And his, his two daughters was there, and his... Uh, several grandchildren, the youngest of them, uh, five-year-old twins. And uh, I wondered, uh, when I first saw them at the cemetery, I wonder how it is to bring, because it's a really, it's a remarkable ceremony. You know, the casket gets lowered into the ground, and everybody present at the end goes up and either shovels a, a shovel full of soil in, or picks up a handful of soil and lets it drop in on the coffin. And because the coffin is so far down and the, the soil is in rocks, it makes thuds as it falls in. It's kind of, you get it. And I thought, wow, I wonder if these children, how they feel about it. And I think it was a good idea that they were there. They were fine. They threw... I, you know, I, I walked down back to my car with one of them, and he's fine. And I, th I think it's very good, actually, to not, to not hide that from people. Anyway, the, the the a man who was Jean's next door neighbor uh, talked about him as he was one of the two eulogists, and he talked about how he and his wife had moved in next to these people 25 years ago. And uh, Jean was already a generation older than he. And he said he was so helpful to me. He said, over the years, whatever I wanted to know, friendly, helpful. And he said, every time I was doing some home improvement job and the lumber company would move a, would leave a whole pile of lumber outside, he said, when I went outside and picked up the end of a, a long plank, 
Jean was already at the other side of it, holding it up. He said, whenever I went to pick up a piece of lumber, Jean was at the other end, waiting to carry it with me. And he ended up, and he didn't say, you know, I, I actually, I don't know what Jean did as a work. I know that he went to work every day for 30 years. I, I know they had a difficult childhood. But what he said about him was he was the kindest of men. He was always there when you needed somebody. I think that was important because at the end of the time, he said, when I get old, I want to be like him. Actually, he didn't say that to the people standing there. He said that to, he said it to Jean in his coffin, lying down there. He said, Jean, when I get old, I want to be just like you. You are my role model. And I want to be a kind of man that was like you. I want to be good and kind like you were. And I think, I, I was so touched by that. I think, when I think about wise intention, I think we all want to do that. I, I think it's attached in some way in our minds to the moral inventory uh, that, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is true for you, is it not? You make a mistake and you hurt somebody's feelings. Maybe you talk to impromptu. Maybe, I mean, obviously if you accidentally drop something on someone's toe or step on them and you feel bad. If I say something, if I say something too impromptu to my husband in a not pleasant tone of voice because I am actually a little irritable, I feel bad about it afterwards. You know, it's not a horrible thing. People do that. People get testy. You know, people who are living old couples live together. They get like three-year-olds sometimes, and they they say stupid things to each other in the sandbox or something. But I feel bad about it later. Or if someone was to say, you know, you made a remark about... Somebody once said in here years ago, I made an improper remark about um, about military service. Oh, dear. About... Um, about about armies, something about because I was teaching that the Buddha said you shouldn't be in an army, you shouldn't be a soldier, and I said some unthoughtful remark about making it contemporary, and somebody raised some man raised his hand and said, you know, I actually am in the armed forces and I did such and such a tour of duty here and there. And I like to think of us not as war makers, but as peacekeepers. And this has got to be 10, 15 years ago. Anybody was here on that day? I haven't ever made that mistake again. I felt so bad that at the risk of a sly remark, because it got a big laugh out of people. Because <laughs> it was during a, uh, during a time that, that there was a lot of fervor. Probably it was during the time that there was a lot of anti-war fervor in the country and in this class. And I probably said it because it was uh, worth a quick laugh, but it wasn't worth it because I felt bad in the moment, terrible. And I haven't made that mistake since. And not because, you know, first of all, not not only because I don't want to be rebuked and, and caught doing the wrong thing, but because it's not true. I mean, people are in the Army for a variety of reasons. And I think mostly they go in to be peacekeepers or restore peace or because they think they're doing the right thing or because it's the only way they can get an education and the only way that they can learn a trade. And it, it for some people, it's the only way that they can possibly learn to have a job. 
And if it were a different kind of peacekeeping system, anyway, I, I'd like to be a little bit more like Lynn Jensen and think a little bit more before I say things. I have five minutes to say six noble truths, <laughs> so I can do it, because they group into two groups of three, and one of them, one of those groups is called mental development, and in that group are concentration and mindfulness and uh, effort. Concentration we talk about all the time. When we sit down here and our minds settle down, there's a certain amount of gravitas in the mind. It's less easy to be startled. Mindfulness is that ability to say, whoa, anger just arose in my mind and I really feel like telling my boss off right now, but uh, wise effort, which is the third, is the... Um, ability at every moment of choice, like a moment of choice like that, to see path A leads to um, suffering and path B does not lead to suffering. Uh, so I'll just take path B and I will not tell my boss what, however much I think about what happened. There was a football player yesterday who was now lost his job because he punched somebody in the face in the locker room because he got mad at something. And now he's lost his job and he's lost his standing. And he said, you know, and I think as, and you know, I, maybe he's just, maybe it's, uh, I don't know what it is, but I felt really bad for him. You know, that, um, I don't think he's a terrible man. I think it was, in that sense, it was his karma in that, in that moment, however much, whatever it was, testosterone or stress or whatever in his body, to not be able to contain himself. But we all have that in some level. We're all learning how to get a grip, Mom. You know, it's a, it's 15 seconds out of your life. You know, get a grip and think it over. I've been signing my emails. Susan signs her emails, stay away, stay amazed. So I can't do that. Susan's not here today, but she signs all her emails, stay amazed. I love that. Um, Donald signs uh, uh, his emails uh, blessings to you he starts them blessings to you and he ends them blessings to you may this be a blessed day I have started signing my emails T-I-O which means thinking it over which is my my new one of my new practices right now people say you want to do that oh yeah that's great let's do it now think it over maybe not you know uh, it's a time of decision-making. The three last, I have two minutes, the three last, that's all right, when I come back, we will begin uh, ten weeks maybe on the three last, or maybe that's too long, because the three last are the path of ethics, which I actually think are the whole path. You know, I think that meditating is fabulous. I spent the better, you know, I figured out recently I feel that all the time I spent in the last 35 years sitting in monasteries or in retreats is probably two years of monastic training. But, and I, and I think it's really responsible for a lot of change in me and a lot of wisdom in me. But I think the main thing, because we can't sit and meditate day and night, is how we live in the world and that the practice of living in the world and being ethical, at every moment we have to make a decision with, uh, uh, in that, uh, those three, the three are 
wise livelihood. That's where I made the unwise remark about serving in the army. Uh, wise livelihood, which means having a livelihood that doesn't cause harm to yourself or other people. And wise speech, which we could have a whole year on wise speech. And uh, wise action, which is really not doing anything to cause more suffering to yourself or to anybody else. That life is challenging enough without adding to it, but with more um, unwise action. That's a good way to say that. And for to be able to do that, you have to, of course, have enough gravitas in the mind, and you have to have enough wise understanding and wise intention. A long time ago, I wrote about that there wasn't really an eightfold path because you think of a path that goes from here, like this this red path on the floor here of red carpet goes from here to the door. When you hear of a eightfold path, it sounds like it goes from here to some point where we'll be enlightened. And then I, it's been clear to me for a long time that every one of those path parts is related to every other part of the path part. So it's really eight <laughs> points on a circle, so it's the eightfold circle. And then really, if you think about it, they're not so different from each other. So it's like all those eight points on the circle come together in the middle, and it's all the same dot. So it's the eightfold dot is what I've begun to go on. <laughs> so um, I think when we're back in uh, uh, October together, no, September, September 16th. But September 16th is going to be after this event, so I won't see you until this event. I want to really encourage you to think about coming to the event. It'll take, it's about a two, it says it's at 1.30, it's at 11.30, it's 11.30 to 1.30 or 2. It'll be about an hour for a panel discussion, all of us talking together. Uh, and, um, I'm so glad that Patricia Marks Hubbard is coming because she really has some exciting things to say about the planet. And then there will be some snacks and some time to meet each other and uh, some time to think about joining the Peace Alliance. So anyway, if you sign that thing or if you want to bring back the pad, I'll be happy to have it. Take good care of yourself. I'll see you on the 16th. <laughs> T-I-O. <laughs> you know, I should, I should bring this.